please open them to the book of Philemon. I'll be reading Philemon verses 1 through 18, since there's only one chapter. Philemon verses 1 through 18. That's just before Hebrews. Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother. To Philemon, our beloved fellow worker, and Aphia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and the church in your house, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers, because I hear of your love and of the faith that you have toward the Lord Jesus and for all the saints. And I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. For I have derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. Accordingly, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, yet for love's sake, I prefer to appeal to you I, Paul, an old man and now a prisoner also for Christ Jesus, I appeal to you for my child, Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. I am sending him back to you, sending my very heart. I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel. But I prefer to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion but of your own accord. Perhaps this is why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever. No longer as a slave, but more than a slave, as a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh, in the flesh and in the Lord. So if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. If he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. Father, thank you that, Lord, you have spoken to us, delivered to us your final word in the 66 books in this Bible. And Lord, every one of them is in here because you are trying to show us something about ourselves, about each other, about you, God, and how we all relate to each other, how we serve each other, how we serve you. Lord, so help me now to expose these verses as we walk through them so that we may see the real truth that you have in here for us today so that it would all point us to Christ for the glory of your Son, Jesus. So this morning we're going to be looking at a book of the Bible which is just one page. This is a letter that is often briefly read over as interesting but obscure and the page quickly turned to start in on Hebrews. Philemon is a letter written by Paul to a man named Philemon regarding another man named Onesimus. That's it. That's what the letter is about. And Paul's point is to ask Philemon to do something regarding Onesimus. Now, unlike the other letters in the Bible written by Paul, this is a private letter written to an individual, similarly to 2 John and 3 John. So it's a bit like listening in on part of a private conversation, although we will never hear Philemon's response to Paul. We basically hear Paul tell us a little story about a small part of his life. So what we're going to do is walk through these verses today and search for the nuggets of truth Paul has for us. Now one of the main evidences for the privacy of this letter is whenever Paul uses the word you, it's singular, it's only in the first few verses and the last few verses when he uses the word you as a plural. That obviously is one of the problems with an English translation. 
And if Paul is writing a private letter asking Philemon to do something, then the question arises, why does he ever use the plural form of you speaking to the church and to other individuals? Well, we will find out that one of the main takeaways from this letter is the degree to which Christians are bound to one another in their activities through their common faith. It reflects very clearly the social realities of the early Christian community and how we might see it very differently than today's highly individualistic society. Now, because it's a private letter about a very specific issue, it is not teaching overt theological truths as Paul is usually doing in his other letters. So it is often described as being obscure, and in some ways scholars are not entirely certain what it's about, apart from the main point that Paul is asking Philemon to do something regarding Onesimus. The reason is Paul is so delicate in approaching the topic with Philemon, asking him to act, to do something, but entirely on Philemon's own and out of love, rather than under any sense of compulsion, that Paul often writes indirectly and seems elusive. He continues to drop hints about what he wants Philemon to do regarding Onesimus. Now Paul's letter is only this one chapter, 335 words in the original Greek, and the best evidence shows it was written by Paul during his first Roman imprisonment around the same time as Colossians and Ephesians. Philemon, to whom Paul is writing, is a resident of Colossae. So we see at the end of the letter to Colossians that Paul is sending both this letter we have our Bibles open to as well as the letter we know as Colossians to Colossae by messenger. And along with the messenger and the two letters is the man Onesimus. He's the subject of this letter to Philemon. Here's the passage from Colossians to help us understand what we are looking at. Tychicus will tell you all about my activities. He is a beloved brother in the Lord and faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. And with him, Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother, who is one of you. So to begin with, let's understand who the three main characters are in this brief 25-verse letter from Paul. The Apostle Paul himself, of course, needs no introduction. Philemon, to whom the letter is addressed, is a resident of Colossae and apparently at least relatively wealthy for two reasons. Number one, he's a slave owner. So notice that is the first time I have used the word slave and that's a very important word this morning, as we will see in a while. And number two, there is a church which meets in his house. Slave owner and owner of a house large enough for a church to meet. So he's a man of some means. Third character is Onesimus, who is a slave of Philemon. Now the primary reason Paul writes this letter is revealed to us in verses 10 and 17, where he says, I appeal to you for my child. Onesimus. And then he says, receive Onesimus as you would receive me, Paul. And if that sounds slightly ambiguous as to what Paul really means by receive Onesimus, then we can understand why one commentator writes this. The letter is skillfully designed to constrain Philemon to accept Paul's request. And yet, at the same time, it is extremely unclear what precisely Paul is requesting. So Paul begins the letter by writing in verse 1, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our beloved fellow worker. So Philemon is known to Paul to be a Christian man calling him a fellow worker. Now in here he also addresses Aphia, our sister, meaning a female believer, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, which means another male who is a ministry worker. These two, besides Philemon, are often thought to be Philemon's wife and possibly Philemon's son, although it's not certain. At the very end of Colossians, this man Archippus is referred to by Paul. Say to Archippus, See that you fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord, but that's all that is known about him. 
We need to note, however, this letter is really written personally to Philemon, even though others are addressed in here, and even though Paul also writes in the church that meets in your house. Now, at the very beginning of this letter, in the first sentence, we see something unique. Paul begins by saying he is a prisoner for Christ Jesus. In many of his letters, he begins by saying he is an apostle, but never prisoner. Here it's Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus. And this is important because in this letter, Paul is making very certain Philemon doesn't think Paul is simply appealing to his apostolic authority when he is speaking to Philemon and ordering him by virtue of that authority to do what Paul wants him to do. Rather, Paul, as we will see, is appealing to him on the basis of love and mutual submission to Christ in their dealings with each other and with the other brothers and sisters who are also believers. And of course we note that even though Paul is imprisoned by Caesar, he does not say he is a prisoner of Caesar's, rather he is a prisoner for Christ Jesus. So Paul, at the beginning, provides a not-so-subtle reminder of his own sacrifices for the sake of the gospel. And then Paul tells us a critical truth about Philemon when he says to him, our beloved fellow worker. So, during one of Paul's missionary trips, he encountered Philemon at some point, and he responded to the gospel and became a follower of Christ. But more than that, somehow he became an associate of Paul's and worked with him to the extent that Paul here calls him our beloved fellow worker. Paul had apparently never actually been to Colossae, so it was Philemon who traveled somewhere to encounter Paul probably in Ephesus. So now Paul begins to address Philemon. I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers because I hear of your love and of the faith that you have toward the Lord Jesus and for all the saints. He says he's praying for Philemon and the reason he's praying for him is because he hears of how his love and faith are working themselves out in blessing other believers the other saints. Now that is not unique to this letter. Paul often says he is praying for certain people as he does at the beginning of Philippians and Colossians when he says something very similar. And we should assume here that the love he has is towards both Christ and the believers and the faith he has is towards Jesus. And when Paul says in all these letters he is praying for the various saints, it shows us Paul must have spent a lot of time in prayer for many all over the Mediterranean world. But at the same time, the fact that he explicitly tells Philemon he is praying for him is significant. And this praying for Philemon is described in the next verse, verse 6. I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. Now, people would agree the verse is difficult to understand. What exactly is Paul saying here? He says Philemon should be sharing his faith and that would lead him to some type of fuller knowledge. And the sharing he's talking about uses the word koinonia, which we are generally familiar with having the sense of fellowship. So Paul is emphasizing the fellowship the relationship believers have amongst themselves by virtue of their mutual faith in Christ. And he will do that throughout this letter. And this fellowship, this mutual connection, creates not only friendships, but also, listen closely, muy importante, mutual obligations to each other. That icky word we modern Westerners hate, obligation. And it says, mutual obligation Paul is going to appeal to regarding the relationship between Philemon and his slave Onesimus. Not by commanding or ordering Philemon as an apostle, but appealing to this mutual submission believers must have to each other to do good because we are all servants of Christ. One commentator paraphrases this verse like this. Philemon, I am praying that the mutual participation that arises from your faith in Christ 
might become effective in leading you to understand and put into practice all the good that God wills for us and that is found in our community and do this all for the sake of Christ. And it's this mutual obligation Paul is going to appeal to regarding the relationship between Philemon and his slave Onesimus. Not by commanding or ordering Philemon as an apostle, but appealing to this good, or can we say mutual submission, believers should exercise to each other because we are all in a community as servants of Christ. And then Paul finishes his initial introduction to Philemon in verse 7. For I have derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. Paul refers to how Philemon's sharing of his faith, his liberality in doing good, his mutual participation with others in the faith is showing itself. Paul has derived great joy and comfort because Philemon has been busy refreshing the hearts of the saints. Now, why does Paul take all this good Philemon has done and focus it on the expression that he has refreshed the hearts of the saints? The heart he is referring to is best described as the inmost feelings, the person's very self, the whole person in the depths of his emotional life. Of the eight times Paul ever uses that word heart, three of them are found right here in this short letter. This goes along with being a very personal appeal by Paul regarding someone dear to him, a slave. So as Paul begins, he is reminding Philemon of how his faith and love, rooted in Christ, have been working not only in Philemon, but because it has done its work in Philemon, many others have been royally blessed through him. And that sets the stage for Paul to request that he continue to do what is best for the Christian community. And as we read on, Paul makes his request, his appeal to Philemon. Accordingly, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, yet for love's sake, I prefer to appeal to you. I, Paul, an old man, and now a prisoner also for Christ Jesus, I appeal to you for my child, Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. So Paul begins his appeal by immediately setting aside his apostolic authority he could use to command Philemon to fulfill his request. He could be bold and order Philemon, but he rather appeals on the basis of love. And that is not a manipulation by Paul. From here on, he continues to make his appeal as a fellow brother in Christ. Paul is relying on the fact our relationships to one another in Christ create expectations and impose obligations that can't be ignored. In our modern Western individualistic culture, that is a very foreign concept. We have so many rights today, it's hard to count them all, including a new one just recently formally approved in American society. So even in the evangelical church today, we have a fracturing, a lack of cohesion of brotherly commitment, but rather a desire to live for oneself. But let's agree, Jesus is the best example of brotherly commitment, and so something like his parable of the Good Samaritan is a reflection of the heart that Paul has here. So Philemon not only has to do the right thing, but for the right reason, not begrudgingly. And of course, the letter does refer to the entire church, which meets at Philemon's house, so they will eventually hear the details of Paul's request. Then Paul mentions he is both an old man and a prisoner for Christ. That's the second time already he has reminded Philemon he is a prisoner for Christ. That's not to make him feel sorry for Paul, but is in keeping with the idea that all believers are in a struggle together for the gospel. Paul is not only a prisoner, but having to do it as an older man. It's a community thing. This is what Paul said to Timothy. Therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel 
by the power of God. Then a few sentences later, share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. So now Paul finally gets to the reason for this letter. He is appealing to Philemon for his son, as Paul calls him, for his son Onesimus. And Paul says he became Onesimus' father while he was in prison. So somehow Onesimus came to know Paul, and through Paul's preaching, he became a believer. That's a very important point. That changes everything about the person themselves. It also changes the relationship between people. Paul and Galatians. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone and especially to those who are of the household of faith. So Philemon is being informed his relationship to Onesimus has indeed been changed forever. They are eternal brothers in Christ. And he confirms that in the next verse, 11. Formerly, he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. So Paul is confirming their relationships have changed, but note this is also a word play here because he writes about useless versus useful and the name Onesimus means useful. Of course, the name Onesimus was not uncommon for a slave because of its meaning, useful. But there's something more here than a word play. Paul is saying he knew somehow the slave Onesimus was useless to Philemon. And this certainly doesn't mean he was useless because he was no longer with Philemon to serve him as a slave, but rather it suggests Onesimus' behavior had been changed by his conversion. His heart had been changed. So now he acted in a useful manner. Clearly he was diligently serving Paul in some way, which not only was very helpful to Paul, but also created a close relationship between Paul and Onesimus. So as we get into the main body of this short letter, we see Paul has taken this basic tact. He laid the groundwork by doing these three things. First, he goes over what has happened to result in him writing this letter and making his appeal to Philemon. That by God's providence, Onesimus has met Paul and become a Christian and close companion. But to make things right, Paul is sending the slave Onesimus back to Philemon, his master. Secondly, Paul places some pressure on Philemon by reminding him of his difficult circumstances. And then thirdly, he makes it clear to Philemon how hard it is for Paul to send Onesimus back because Paul loves him dearly, this son in the faith. Not only that, but Onesimus was very helpful to Paul in his ministry. Then Paul brings an even more important point home that all this providence of God likely has the purpose of bringing slave Onesimus together with Master Philemon as brothers in Christ, creating a Christ-centered brotherhood. And after laying out all that foundation, he finally says to Philemon, please welcome my dear son Onesimus. Paul finally says what he is actually doing and at the same time how difficult it is for him. In verse 12, I am sending him back to you Sending my very heart. And if there is any sentence where Paul pauses and has a wince of pain in himself, that's it. Paul is saying he is taking the initiative and sending his Christian brother, the slave Onesimus, back to Philemon. How willing or not the slave was to go back is unknown from the contents of the letter. But the fact is, Onesimus had become a brother in Christ and close dear friend to Paul the one who is sending this runaway slave back to Master Philemon, he may never see him again. Paul had just revealed to us that Onesimus was his son, in other words, a convert of Paul's, but in this verse, he takes it to a higher level, saying that Onesimus was his very heart. So Paul says Onesimus has served him in his imprisonment. They had become dear friends. Now we understand historically that during this period of time in the eastern part of the Roman Empire, a fugitive slave who took sanctuary with a free person could be, one, reconciled to the master, or two, 
be put up for sale and the proceeds given to the master. Meanwhile, the Jewish law says this in Deuteronomy. You shall not give up to his master a slave who has escaped from his master to you. He shall dwell with you in your midst, in the place he shall choose within one of your towns, wherever it suits him. You shall not wrong him. But apart from all this, Paul decided to send Onesimus back to Philemon, not likely based on the Jewish law or the Roman law, but on a higher law, that of love created because of their mutual faith in Christ. And Paul knows that Philemon, as the master of the slave, has the ultimate say over what happens to Onesimus. So now in the next two verses, he explains the result of Onesimus' conversion and what it means to Paul, also reiterating its hope that Philemon will do what Paul asks out of a willing heart. I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel. But I prefer to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion but of your own accord. Onesimus is serving Paul during his imprisonment for the gospel. But the serving here is likely not that the slave is preaching the gospel along with Paul, but a more general seeing to Paul's needs while he is in chains. But of course, note Paul once again brings up the fact that he is in chains for the sake of the gospel. Yes, he is trying to evoke a little sympathy from Philemon, but he's also reminding him that serving for the gospel will often bring suffering. And if one part suffers, every part suffers, like Paul writes elsewhere. Paul, again, comes from the worldview of a Christian community, something entirely new in the course of human history. So Paul describes what Philemon might do regarding Onesimus is from Philemon's goodness. And to Paul, this goodness is not so much that it would be helpful to Paul, but because it would be pleasing to God. That Philemon would do it cheerfully and not under compulsion, like 2 Corinthians each one must give as he decide, has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And in Romans, telling us to be subject to government authorities when he says, therefore one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. And there's another important point here also. Philemon's fellow slaveholders in Colossae, whether they were believers or not, would hear about this entire interaction between Paul and Philemon. They would see what Philemon did was not forced upon him by some religion. Rather, he did it out of his goodness as a believer. Doing what Paul wrote in Titus when commanding people how to live as a Christian. And finishes by saying, so that they will adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior, in every respect. So up to this point, Paul has been speaking about Philemon receiving Onesimus, speaking about the reception of this runaway slave. Now he is going to turn to the restoration of the relationship between Philemon and Onesimus. And actually in these next two verses, it's the first time we actually see the word slave this is how we come to know he was Philemon's slave who ran away. For this perhaps is why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever, no longer as a slave, but more than a slave as a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. Paul is focusing here on God's providence and what was wrong being turned for good. Not only did he run away, but we'll see he apparently even stole from his master as he left. But God has turned all of that wrong into something glorious. Not only the salvation of Onesimus, but also a reconciliation between an angry master and his slave. So we see here echoes of what happened with Joseph when his brother sold him as a slave 
And because Joseph ended up in Egypt, he saved untold numbers of people from starvation. Like Joseph said to his brothers, As for you, you meant it for evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive. And of course, an obvious reference could be made here to Romans chapter 8. God works all things for good for those who are called according to His purpose. And so right here, this is radical news for Philemon. Suddenly one day, with no apparent warning, standing before Philemon is the slave who ran away and stole from him. And he has every reason to be furious. But with what Paul has now disclosed to him in these few verses, he understands Onesimus is coming back as a believer in Christ. He's repentant and is now a fellow brother in Christ along with all the implications of that new relationship. And Paul emphasizes that when he says this beloved brother of his, Onesimus, who is Paul's very heart, is even more beloved to Philemon. So now we can see Paul has completed his method of persuasion to Philemon by having laid out all the new relationships between these three men which have been created only because of Jesus Christ and their faith in Him. Paul is a highly educated religious Pharisee by training. Onesimus starts out as a runaway slave. No about living in the underworld of Rome before coming in contact with Paul. And by Onesimus' conversion, he has become a brother in Christ to Paul and is now very useful to him in ministry and become like a son to him. Meanwhile, between Paul and Philemon, he has not only become a believer, but has also been a partner with Paul in his ministry. And finally, the relationship between Philemon and Onesimus. Paul is hoping that is about to be radically changed as well. This also solely because of what Christ has done in both of them. So Paul has asked Philemon to receive Onesimus back, no longer as a slave, but more than a slave, as a beloved brother. So the question is, is there some hint in here that Paul is expecting manumission from Philemon? Freeing a slave is known as manumission. Now there has always been much debate about this issue as to whether Paul was expecting Philemon to free Onesimus from being a slave since Onesimus was now a brother in Christ. So what about slaves and slavery as it relates to the time frame of this short letter from Paul? But we know that in the Roman world of Paul's day, slaves did often run away. But they would live in the underworld, typically joining groups of robbers and trying to disappear into the soap culture of a large city like Rome. They would try to flee to distant places so they could be absorbed into the workforce. And Paul does several times address slaves in his letters while addressing others. For example, in 1 Corinthians, Were you a slave when called? Do not be concerned about it. But if you can gain your freedom... Avail yourself of the opportunity. But what we don't see in the scriptures is a concerted effort to do away with the institution of slavery. And to some people this may seem a bit odd because obviously slavery is a despicable institution and an unacceptable way to treat fellow human beings, that is to own them. But at the time of Paul's writing, slavery was an absolutely integral part of the social and the economic world. It's hard to determine for sure, but it's possible in cities like the one we're talking about today, Colossae, as many as one-third of the people in the city might have been slaves. And of course, slavery meant all kinds of different things. That is why, for example, our ESV Bible often uses the word bondservant rather than slave throughout the translation, even though Many other translations simply use the word slave. The Greek word doulos is the word being translated. But as the ESV says, that term covers a wide range of relationships that would depend on the context. So in the translator's opinions, they sometimes do translate the word as slave. For example, in Romans, speaking about sin, they translate it as slave, as in slave to sin. But when they felt the context might be regarding someone who was bound to serve as master, 
for an often lengthy period of time, maybe someone who might also eventually own property or be an important member of a family or relationship, they translate it bondservant. And as you've heard, I have every time where the ESV says bondservant, I have used the alternative footnote word slave. So slavery in first century Rome was so integrated into the fabric of society, it was not something Christians focused on changing. That was not their immediate calling in general. A modern analogy, though not perfect, might be the issue of abortion. We know it is a horrific evil, we know it is ingrained in society and largely accepted as a fact of life, and it is also fully legal. And even though we would do whatever we could to rid the earth of it, most typically feel powerless to do much about it. Although, thank God, there are some who do fight tirelessly against it. And there is another important issue here. Freedom for a slave in the first century Roman world may not be the obvious good it is for us in the Western world. Our understanding of slavery typically fits in the narrow context of the horrific institution which existed in the South and the United States the forced enslavement and harsh treatment of people of a certain race. And in the Roman world of this time, there were many people forced into slavery fully against their will, but there were others who voluntarily sold themselves into slavery. It was not done on the basis of race. Slavery was highly varied in the conditions and the activities of the slaves. Everything from working in the salt mines and dying at a young age to a respected household slave, possibly even running the business of the master and helping to raise his children. A freed slave might even continue to serve his master. And think about what would happen if a slave was freed or many slaves were suddenly freed. The slave owner might be condemning many of them to poverty or even starvation. It might be compared to first century polygamy. If a polygamist became a Christian and then sent one of his wives away, he might be condemning the woman to a life as a lonely outcast and a life of poverty. But when Paul says to Philemon regarding Onesimus that he should receive him back differently now both in the flesh and in the Lord, clearly there is something about their being brothers in Christ which should impact their relationship as men to each other in the flesh. So it should be obvious that calling someone a dear brother in Christ and at the same time owning them is a problem. So although Paul does not here directly address the evil of the institution of slavery, it could only wilt and die in a culture with a true, a true Christian worldview. One commentator says it perfectly about what is said in this letter. A principle is boldly enunciated which must in the end prove fatal to slavery. So now, verse 17, Paul finally makes this direct appeal to Philemon. So if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. He had stated before, rather ambiguously, about what he wanted when he said, I appeal to you for my child Onesimus. But up to this point, he has been laying the groundwork by establishing the relationship these three men all have to each other by virtue of their faith in Christ, in their service in the ministry, and to each other. So on the basis of those relationships, he makes this appeal in verse 17. Paul starts out with the word, so. So after all that, here is what I want. If you really do consider me your partner. Maybe like Titus was. As for Titus, he is my partner and fellow worker for your benefit. If you're that kind of partner in the gospel... If we say once again the partnership is not for our benefit, but for the benefit of others because we are servants of Christ. Like Paul says to the Philippians. He prays with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Paul gives the punchline to Philemon. 
If you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. So Philemon is sitting there, having this letter read to him. And Onesimus is standing there. Onesimus, who had run away, stealing something in the process, as we will see in a moment. He had not seen him in who knows how long. And he thought he would maybe never see him again. So he may not have been feeling much love for him at that moment. And Paul says, receive Onesimus as you would receive me. Receive him. The one Paul says is his very heart. So this may be an example of what Paul was teaching about when he told the Galatians, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Similar to the challenge Jesus gave to believers about forgiving others when he spoke about the forgiven debtor who then would not forgive a debt due him. And should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in his anger, the master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also, my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. And that's what this letter is all about. Paul wants Philemon to forgive Onesimus from the heart not because the great apostle Paul says so. He wants it to be done because of Philemon's love for Christ and his obligation he therefore has to the Christian community. That's the opposite of find yourself, but then spend your time serving that self you found. Then Paul takes care of a detail that may be a huge issue, that may be causing some anger and hard-heartedness in Philemon at this point. So he says it immediately after the punchline request of receiving Onesimus back with open arms. Verse 18. If he has wronged you at all, or owes you anything, charge that to my account. Paul takes that issue off the table. Any concern or anger on Philemon's part about what Onesimus may have stolen when he ran away is completely diffused. Paul does say, if Onesimus owes you anything. But Paul and Onesimus are dear friends who have been laboring together while Paul is in prison. So we can fully believe Onesimus has shared with Paul the circumstances of his life and is running away. So it's very likely not much of an if he stole something when he ran away. A slave would be penniless on the run. But a question might be this. Paul is saying he'll pay it back. Uh, but Paul is a traveling missionary. He supports himself by making tents. Can he really fulfill the obligation he is making that whatever the damages are, he will pay it back? And is there not a hint here it could be substantial or that one might scoff that a person of Paul's income could pay it back? Because we look at Paul's next statement, hey, I'm writing this with my own hand. He apparently feels the need to make it a very forceful promise. So even if it seems incredible, Paul really means it. Philemon can take that to the bank. We can't believe Paul is just saying that, thinking, well, Philemon's going to forgive everything anyway and let bygones be bygones. We have to believe that Paul really means it. So here in this short letter, Paul is not just trying to give us a gospel message. He's not telling us about faith in Christ, forgiveness of sins, substitutionary atonement. He's not admonishing us about the devil and sins that plague mankind. But actually, you can see it clearly in here if you'll notice. Paul is always writing about these things in his letter because he is saturated in his life with and by the gospel. He says to others, join with me in suffering for the gospel. He tells the Corinthians, I have decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. He tells them, I have made myself a servant to all that I might win more of them. 
And that he does it all for the sake of the gospel. He tells Timothy, I endure everything for the sake of the elect. We could go on and on about Paul. So now, if that's Paul, if that's the heart of Paul, then what happens when Paul writes a personal letter to a fellow believer about his dear friend Onesimus? It is saturated with the gospel and its impact on all of these relationships. Paul intercedes to Master Philemon on behalf of the one who has done wrong, Onesimus, but is now repentant. Paul says, receive him, forgive him. Paul says, whatever debt Onesimus has to his master, Paul says, he can't pay it, but I will pay it in his stead. No matter what it is, no matter how great. That's why the Apostle Paul says things that many times in his letters might seem a little bit arrogant. He tells the Corinthians, I urge you then, be imitators of me. And later, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. He tells the Philippians, uh, Brothers, join in imitating me. He can say all that because his life and actions are indeed saturated with the gospel of his salvation. Some may read the scriptures and think, Paul is a nasty curmudgeon or a misogynist. He says things like, If a man shall not work, he shall not eat. Cretans are always liars, lazy gluttons. This is true. Women should keep silent in the churches. They are not permitted to speak. Deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. But no, his sole purpose is to glorify Christ. Christ who has seized hold of him. He is the man who said to Timothy, As I remember your tears, I long to see you that I may be filled with joy. And when they are warning him, don't go to Jerusalem, he said, what are you doing weeping and breaking my heart? I am ready to die for the Lord Jesus. And when he's angry about the perversion of the gospel, he says, the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. No, Paul is a man with a tender and serious heart dedicated to one thing, glorifying Christ, being saturated in word, actions, and thoughts by the gospel. And from beginning to end, so is this short letter to Philemon. Paul is a prisoner. Why? For the gospel of Jesus Christ. Timothy is with him. Why? Because he's trying to train him to be an evangelist and a teacher. He is always praying for the saints that they may walk in the faith. Paul loves Philemon because he's become a fellow brother in the Lord through the preaching of the gospel. And Paul's full of joy because now Philemon is blessing the saints. Paul loves Onesimus, his very heart, because through the gospel he has been converted to be his brother. And now he's a key helper to Paul in the preaching of the gospel. But Paul must trust God will do what is best by sending Onesimus back and Paul will trust that somehow the resources will become available to pay the debt of Onesimus as he promised. That's the same resources trust he always had as he traveled to preach the gospel. And what is ultimately behind all he is doing here in this letter? Paul's central focus that the gospel will continue to be spread. As he says, I do everything for the sake of the elect. Of course, it is God who does the saving by that gospel and cleans them up, changes the slave and master. Paul is only a servant of Christ. Paul takes in a runaway criminal, most likely lived in a seedy underworld with thugs. But Paul makes him his helper and loves him so that he is his very heart. So do we see how countercultural the gospel and its effects are here? Paul is a former Pharisee. Studied under Gamaliel. That's a high position. That's basically like a Harvard graduate. Paul was a very self-righteous Pharisee who had spent much of his life looking down his nose at how bad others were, how sinful, how low class, how in need of correction. And Onesimus is basically a homeless person, probably living as a thug 
and a wanted man. And because of the gospel and its result in new birth, in these two men, by God's mercy, they have become brothers. But this homeless guy, Paul says, has become his very heart. He will even pay his debts for his freedom. Hey Philemon, the guy you relied upon in your household, the one who stole from you and ran away, receive him back like your own brother. But because he is now your eternal brother in Christ. The gospel is always like that with everything, seeming contradictory to the culture. It says, if you want to live, you have to die to self. If you want to save your life, you have to lose it. If you want to waste your life, live it for yourself. If you have an enemy, love him. If someone harms you, forgive him. If something's evil, overcome it with good. If you want to live eternally, you have to die temporarily here, now, in this life, to sin. Your best life now? No. Your treasure is in heaven. If you have nothing, believer, you actually have everything. You have Christ and every one of His promises. Don't say, I'll cover up the bad, I'll do good, I will clean myself up, God. No, rather, wash yourself in blood, the precious saving blood of that bloody cross of Christ when you repent and believe and are washed as white as snow. Onesimus may have stayed as a slave his whole life. Who knows? But he had been eternally set free in Christ. Father, we thank you for the brotherhood of believers, the family of God that you have created, all because of our common faith in Christ. Our common faith that you, Jesus, truly did die on that bloody cross all those years ago, taking the penalty for our sin. And we have come alive because you have changed our hearts and you have said, come to me. And we've said, yes, certainly we will, to the glorious King. And then you say, go now. Love your brothers, love your sisters, love those who hate you. Serve them, do not serve yourself for your own good. But find your joy in seeing others rejoice. Find your joy in seeing others rejoice that they have too come to this knowledge of the truth. Thank you for Paul, thank you for giving us this man that we can imitate. We want to imitate you, Jesus, beyond all things, but we thank you for Paul, the man with such a tender yet serious heart that says, do these things, do these hard things that God has called you to do, but do them in love. Do them in love because the Spirit of God lives in you to cause you to say yes. Yes, yes, because it will bring Glory to you, Jesus. Thank you for your precious word. Thank you that every book that's in here has hidden treasures, nuggets of truth that ultimately turn us to say, yes, Jesus, you are worthy. You are high and lifted up. You are the Savior. You are our King. You are our treasure.